Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I thought it was going to be like a alien-esque historical whodunit with a Western flair, but it's a World War II book about mules, which is not what I expected. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, nor did I. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle. And this is What Should I Read Next, episode 248. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I hope you've heard me mention our upcoming fall book preview. This is a live event we're doing for members of our What Should I Read Next Patreon community, where we'll take a look at 42 of the upcoming releases this season, including books I've read and loved, books I can't wait to read, and books the publishing industry is buzzing about. This is your last chance to join us. The fall book preview is next Tuesday, September 1st. So head over to patreon.com slash what should I read next and become a member today. You'll get access to all of our past bonus episodes, printables like our bonus book lists and episode highlights reels, and of course, you'll get to join us on September 1st for the Fall Book Preview, and you'll get our Fall Book Preview magazine. I can't wait to share these books with you and hope you'll join us then. Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next to sign up now. That's patreon.com slash what should I read next. Readers, we all have our quirks when it comes to reading. Whether you have a compulsion to finish every series you start, or fall into the habit of rereading your favorite books over and over again, I'm here to affirm your reading choices, or to help you make changes to develop a more satisfying reading life. Today, I'm talking with Jennifer Cordero, who lives in Bermuda, a small island with two bookstores and one library. Jennifer has encountered her fair share of bookworm problems, both in her own reading life and in her job at her small island bookstore where hurricanes, tourism, shipping dilemmas, and special orders mean you never know which books you'll find on the shelves. Fortunately, Jennifer is a mood reader and enjoys the serendipity of finding an eye-catching cover to take home with her. Her personal bookshelves are currently overstuffed with more than 1,000 unread titles. And today, my job is to help Jen choose what to read next. And if one of those titles is already in her home library, so much the better. Plus, we talk about the occupational hazards of working in a bookstore, the joys of mood reading, and a surprising hometown connection. Be sure to visit the show notes page to see the full list of books discussed today. That's at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 248. We've got a transcript available there as well, if that is helpful to you. Let's get to it. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for spending your birthday week. 
Talking Books with me for the podcast. It's a pretty awesome birthday gift, I have to say. You know you're in the right community when what you want to do for your, you know, your special birthday time is just bring on the book talk. <laughs> yes. I'm in heaven. I'm glad it worked out this way. Okay, so we first connected with you when we put out a call to our Patreon community members and said, hey, times are strange. Many of us are reading from our shelves at home because we're having a harder time getting books. You responded to that call, thank you, and described your, well, where I sit in Louisville, Kentucky, your living and reading situation sounds delightful and exotic. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about where you are, what you do? Uh, well, I live in Bermuda. I was born and raised here and spent about eight years in the U.S. and then came home. And currently, my main job is working in one of our local bookstores, which is funny because our two bookstores and our library are within spitting distance of each other, which seems a little silly on a 24-square-mile island, but that's how it is. So yeah, that's my main job. I also have a little dog bathing business, and I make greeting cards, and sometimes I work at a veterinary hospital on their reception desk, so I'm a bit of a hustler. What do you do at the bookstore? Just salesperson. There's only four of us. Um, the two girls who own the store are actually sisters, and I went to school with them. So when I was looking for a, a part-time gig the end of 2018, I went in and sort of said, do you guys have anything happening? And they were like, actually, yes. So it worked out perfectly. <laughs> So what's your bookstore like in Bermuda? And I imagine there's what it's typically like, because you've been working there a while, and what it's like right now with the cruise ships not coming through. First of all, it's tiny. It's been there for about 75 years. So I remember wow. going there when I was a kid. Back then, it was about three times the size it is now, but it's been subdivided over the years. So now it's about 850 square feet. And it's one of those bookstores that you literally don't know what you're going to stumble over and find. It's just a little treasure chest of books. So normally we do a pretty roaring special orders business because clearly we don't have a lot of room for stock. Um, and in the summer, especially, we have a we see a lot of the tourists. Our Bermuda book section does well. And then also, actually, last year we found out a lot of the new cruise ships are not putting libraries onto the boat. So we had a ton Sacrilege. of tourists. Yes, I know, but great for us because all the tourists came <laughs> in to see us. <laughs> What a great souvenir. Yeah. I would love to hear an example of a title from your Bermuda book section. Well, oh, let's see. I'm trying to think. What are the big sellers? I mean, we have beautiful coffee table books, which are all sort oh, of I very bet. specific history. You know, there's one about old maps. There's one, actually an amazing one just came out last year about during World War II, the mail used to come through here and be sorted through and checked, you know, for any nefarious goings on within the mail. So we were very involved mm -hmm. in that. You know, just your beautiful picture books. We do have a, a small local fiction section. And then just, again, you know, your birds, your fish, your shipwrecks, your <laughs> Bermuda things. <laughs> now tell me about how you come to have a store where you literally don't know what you're going to stumble upon. How do you all stock the shelves? Hannah and Miriam, who own it, have really honed over the years or curated what our customers want. We have a very, very loyal customer base. So a lot of what we choose is kind of based on what we know people like, what we sold a lot of. We also stay on top of what's coming, what's new mm -hmm. and exciting. We Last year, I got to go to Book Expo in New York, which was amazing. Um, and Hannah, you know, has been to the one in London. We stay on top of all of that. But really, like I said, it's funny because a lot of our business is special orders. So people will come in and say, can you get X, Y, and Z? And then other customers will come just to look at the special order shelf 
to see what other people have bought and get ideas from that. So it's kind of fun. You never know what you're going to find. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, I can't resist asking. You spent time in the United States. You're born and bred Bermudian, but you did spend time in the United States Mm -hmm. in some of the, you know, the places you might suspect, like New York and Chicago, but also Louisville. And I am so curious because that's where I am. Well, my degree uh, in college was actually theater design with a specialization in stage management. So I was lucky enough to get an internship at Actors Theater of Louisville. Oh, which was oh, a that's wonderful. huge, huge deal. I was very lucky. So I spent a year interning and then I, they kept me on once I got my union card and kept me on for a year to work. So I was yeah. there 97 through 99. It was pretty cool. I was born and raised here and I always thought I'm never going to live here as an adult. <laughs> and I remember hearing when I was in, I don't know, I was probably 15 and I was working with someone who was in there probably early 20s, and they'd come to Louisville on purpose from another bigger city. And I just didn't understand. I was like, explain to me why you've chosen Louisville. Because I imagine that many kids growing up in their hometown think like, I got to get out to where the grass is greener. And he was like, it's 20 minutes to the airport, 20 minutes downtown. And for a city this size, the arts community is amazing. And I was like, whatever, dude. Yeah. But then I grew up and (laughs) here I am. And that's one of the reasons why. Well, it's the same here. When I graduated high school, I said, I'm never coming back to this rock. I'm done with it. (laughs) I went to school in New York, then I went to Louisville, then I went to Chicago, back to New York, and then I was like, I think it's time to go home now. I've done my eight years. I think you have to leave where you're from to really truly appreciate it sometimes. So what compelled you to go back to The Rock, Jen? I was kind of falling out of love with the theater work and feeling a little bit lost, not sure what I wanted to do. So I thought I would come home and just reset and figure out what I was going to do from there. And then I stayed. How long has it been? I came back in 2000, so 20 years. Still trying to figure out exactly what I want to be when I grow up, but I'll get there eventually. Well, it gives you a good reason to read Bradley, right? (laughs) This is true. Jen, you mentioned you encounter a fair number of small island book struggles. Would you tell me a little bit what that's like? What challenges do you face in the book business or as a reader curating her reading life that might be foreign to those in more populated, less (laughs) ocean-bound areas? Well, our biggest issue is getting the books to the island. And then even once they're here, getting them to the store. You know, we have to contend with weather. You know, if there's a hurricane here or a snowstorm in the U.S., that can slow down the shipping process. COVID-19, that's also a problem. Um, This past week, actually, we've had the problem that an order got into the island last week, but there's a mystery box in it that nobody can identify. It's not ours. It's obviously gotten mixed in with our boxes. But until it can be figured out what it is, we can't get our boxes. And now we're told we won't get them until next week because this weekend we have a four-day public holiday. These people who wanted their books for the holiday, and we can't get a hold of them even though they're just down the road on the dock. Hashtag bookworm problems. Oh, yes. (laughs) We also have the price issue, especially with the tourists, because obviously everything that gets imported, it's going to be more expensive. So even though like we sell American hardcover books at cover price, that still seems like too much money to people who are used to going to Costco or Amazon where things are so deeply discounted. But on a positive side, we also get books from the UK. So we'll get books here before you can get them in the U.S., Or we can get, you know, different cover versions and things like that. So that's kind of fun. We have that option as well, which is nice. All right. I'm ready to come shopping. (laughs) Anytime. And yet, despite these buying hassles, you have managed to accumulate, what, 1,500 books on your unread shelf, owned but not read? 
Yes, and they've they've moved around a lot. Like east of Eden, I bought in Louisville in 1998 at the Barnes and Noble on, in Shelbyville, and I just read it last year. So it's moved from Louisville to New York to Chicago to Bermuda. My books are well traveled. I know I'm a little jealous of your copy of East of Eden. <laughs> Jen, I want to read you something from almost three years ago. You sent in a submission to be on the show. And readers, this is a good time to say, Jen filled out the form at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash guest. And we read 99.2% of these and think, oh my gosh, I want to have them on the show immediately. And we only put out one episode a week. Here's what you referenced then. I'm currently on a strict budget, which means that instead of buying books by the armload, I am actually reading from the 1,300 plus books I've accumulated over the last 20 years. I've always acquired books a lot faster than I read them, which means I have plenty to choose from at the moment. So, oops, somehow you've added 200 books. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. In three years. <laughs> I partly blame the bookstore because thanks to the bookstore, I've been introduced to ARCs. Oh my gosh. Okay. For those who don't know, tell us what those are and why that would be such an occupational hazard for you. ARCs are advanced reading copies that get sent out to, you know, bookstores and reviewers and everybody a few months ahead of a book being released. I guess the idea is we read them, decide if we want them for the store, that kind of thing. When I first got this job, my husband was like, I don't really think this is a good idea. I think you're going to bring home books and not money. (laughs) He sounds like a smart man. (laughs) And the very first day, I brought home a stack of arcs. And he said, see, I told you, it's happening already. Well, at least you didn't pay that stack of books. That is something. (laughs) Wow, I can't believe I'd forgotten I sent that in with the 1,300 books three years ago. 1,300 books. Mm -hmm. This is a moment in time. And the numbers are going up and not down. Yeah, I think that's going to happen forever. I know. It doesn't have to be a bad thing exactly. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter how I feel about it. How do you feel about all these books on your unread shelf? Well, I feel that COVID-19 made me right. I mean, we were locked down for a month. Thank God I had 1,500 books. (laughs) And how many of them did you read? What percentage? What percentage? Oh, I think that's like a 0.0 something percent. (laughs) That's what happens when the numbers get big. And I may accidentally have acquired more somehow during lockdown. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but... We just roll with it. Now, some people look at 1,500 books on their shelves. Actually, I'm trying to visualize 1,500 books. There's three different sets of bookshelves, and they're all very pretty, except two of the shelves have to be double stacked. There's a row in front and behind because I was running out of room, and that distresses me because I can't see them all. I relate to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so aside from the double shelving, readers could either feel some stress about that, or they could feel that they are amply supplied What a wonderful feeling. It is a wonderful feeling. You have to have what you need for the mood at the time. And you never know what that's going to be. So plenty of options is important. Plenty of options is important. Okay. And yet today we are choosing from your unread shelf and not new releases that might be coming into the store. Right? Not feeling wobbly about that? No, I'm all good with that. Who was it? Was it Dan? Dan, who was on an episode a couple... Episode 242, Danny, he said that he's trying to alternate new books with ones on his shelf. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm trying to do also. I think that's a good way of doing it. So right now, how are you choosing what to read next, Jen? Despite what I always say about, oh, I'm going to try and alternate this, that, and the other, it just ends up being mood. I literally walk along the shelf and something will jump out at me and that is what I read. It might be the cover. It might just be, I've maybe heard about it recently. It's a mood thing. There's no rhyme or reason, really. Okay. How's that working for you? It's good. I've had a few hits, a few misses, but uh, 
yeah, I like it because it still seems to be new stuff mixed with old stuff. So I feel like I am accomplishing something when I do that. Okay. So right now you did a count. You have 1,507 books. Yes. And of those, you have read 322. That is 21%. Yes. Almost at 25. That'll be a milestone. <laughs> <laughs> is that a goal or just something that you're noticing? I just noticed, but I thought that would be a nice round number to get up to. 25% would be good. Okay. So today, I have a list of books on your shelf, and we're going to choose from them to decide what to read next. Okay. Sounds exciting. What if there's a new release that I really think you'd like a ton? I think you definitely need to tell me it would be wrong. It would be wrong if <laughs> you not to. That was purely like hypothetical at this point. I was just curious what you'd say. <laughs> so Jen, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next that you have already chosen for yourself at some point in time. I'd love to hear how you chose the books that we're going to talk about today. How'd you choose your favorites? And not favorite. Well, the not favorite was the easiest because <laughs> I see the all caps hate on, yes. your, on your sheet here. <laughs> it traumatized me. The books I love, though, I actually tried to go for books that perhaps haven't been talked about on the show before, because a lot of things I loved are ones that I think other people love, too. And they've had their moment in the sun. So I tried to uh, go outside the box a little bit with some of my others. Well, let's dive in. Tell me about the first book you love. Okay, so the first book I chose is The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. And that's a book I actually first read in school. And I think it was the first time I was really excited about a book. You know, it wasn't one of the usual dead and dusty authors that we had to read. Um, it was very different. It's kind of a it's dystopian novel. So it felt exciting. It takes place post-nuclear war in a society that has reverted really to Puritanism. And anyone who deviates from what they call the true form must be destroyed. And that's people, plants, animals. So the main character, David, turns out he has telepathic abilities, as do some of his friends. And this, of course, makes them targets because that deviates from the true form. Um, and they began to hear about another society with more open ideas, so they decide to try and find them. I think I really like a book about gutsy kids. I was a bit wimpy when I was a child, so I kind of lived through these kids who just went out in the world and fought for what they needed to fight for and were brave and did what they had to do to get through life. And also, this book made me think of episode 233 with Hanan, and she said she stole her copy of The Scarlet Letter from school. Uh-oh. I also stole the chrysalids. <laughs> I was a real goody two-shoes, so clearly I loved this book if I stole it from school. I still have that copy. Oh, good. That's one of your 1,507 titles. Yes, it is. <laughs> I actually reread it during lockdown just to uh, confirm that actually, yes, I still love it, and I do. Oh, nice. Yeah. Do you keep your red books separate from the ones you're still contemplating reading? No, no. They mix together happily. Jen, how nerdy do we want to be? Nerdy is awesome. Let's go for it. All right. Something that I like that we have... Wyndham to thank for indirectly is that he's responsible for the coining of the phrase cozy catastrophe. He didn't coin this phrase himself, but another author did talking about his work. And I just, I just love cozy catastrophe. It makes me happy. I'd never heard that. Oh yeah. Okay. No. So when you're talking about a cozy catastrophe, you're talking about an end of the world story, but it's not one that ends in like a bang, boom crash in a cozy catastrophe. It's more about the the survivors and the aftermath. And gutsy kids, I'm sorry to say, are not necessarily implied here, though they could be, because 
in a cozy catastrophe, the catastrophe isn't the point of the story. It's not the thing that's lingered over. The story is about the people who survive. And they're typically middle class. They typically haven't lost the key people in their life. The working classes are wiped out. So what you have is a story of the survivors wandering around an empty city, uh, regretting the lost world and kind of moving forward. Yeah, it doesn't really say exactly what happened. Just sort of hints at, at what the catastrophe was. And yeah, everyone's just kind of in a stage of rebuilding the world. Yes, that's the focus. So The Chrysalids was written in the 50s. The author who coined this phrase was not a fan. Like he thought cozy catastrophes were super formulaic. And if you're thinking now like, oh, I'm imagining a station 11. No, because they're like regretting their lost events and they remember the people they lost and they wish that they could have Shakespeare on stage again, even though they're, you know, have their little traveling band. So that's like kind of along the same lines, but this was a criticism. Interesting. Yeah, because these guys don't, remember like David this is just his normal they've moved that far past the event so what's going on in this book is uh he's kind of they're starting to hear bits and pieces about how it might have been before and there are a few generations past the event interesting all right so that's the chrysalids by John Wyndham all right Jen tell me about book two all right so my second choice was the sex lives of cannibals by J Martin Troost I actually think I might have gotten this in the bookstore that I now work in, but it is a hilarious memoir about a guy and his girlfriend who moved to a teeny tiny little island in the South Pacific. So she moves there for work, and he tags along, imagining a life of a writer luxuriating paradise, but it's not exactly how it turns out. So some of his experiences were pretty spot on in terms of island life, but Uh, They're a little worse off than us here because at least we have electricity and coffee, which was often not the case where he was. But I just thought his insights into the differences in the way island life works. There's nobody's in a rush to do anything. Things will happen when they happen. We will get things when we get things and you just have to roll with it. Otherwise, you will lose your mind. And after a period of time, he figures out how to just roll with it. And I found out there's actually two more books um, about his time out there. So I'm going to have to track those down and add them to my 1507. <laughs> so yeah, that one I love just for the laughs. And uh, we keep selling out of it in the store still. So it's a good one. Oh, is that because people are, it's catching their eye? Is that, or is that because you're like, I got a book for you? Yes. I'm like, you must read this. It's brilliant. <laughs> okay. That was The Sex Lives of Cannibals by J. Martin Troost. Yes. And I have to say, the title doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the book. Some people kind of go, I don't know how I feel about that, but ignore the title, read the book. Duly noted. All right, Jen, the time has come. You know, I have to ask you what the other one is too, because we're going to get a zillion emails and messages that say, (laughs) what was she going to pick? So, okay. What's the runner up? Tell us that first. All right. The runner up is The Dog Stars by Peter Heller. Okay. And I, it's only the runner-up because I had already put a dystopian book on my list, and I didn't want to be dystopian heavy. Were you surprised to notice that? Yes. I didn't even think about it till after I'd written you know, my first three choices, yeah. and then I went, yeah. oh. Because I never would have described myself as a dystopian kind of gal. I'm not really into sci-fi or fantasy or any of that, so I wouldn't have pegged myself at that. But now that I think about it, there are more. So, readers, The Dog Stars by Peter Heller, honorary favorite adjacent inclusion. <laughs> Yes. All right, Jen, now tell us about book three. All right, so book three is The Midnight Cool by Lydia Peel. I have this weird thing with the books on my shelf. If I'm going to pick something off my shelf, I literally pick it by the cover. I'm not allowed to read the back to remind myself what it's about. 
It's a weird little game I play. So when I pulled this off the shelf and looked at the cover, I thought it was going to be like a alien-esque historical whodunit with a Western flair. But it's a World War II book about mules, which is not what I expected. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, nor did I. But it takes place mostly in 1916 and 17, uh, you know, leading up to America joining World War I. There are a few different plot lines that revolve around Billy and his horse trading partner, Charles. There's a love story, a business story, and some backstory, and how they get involved with the mule trade, and also the love story deals with class issues, which is often tragic. Um, but the animal angle is probably what caught my attention initially about the book, because that's my thing. I will buy a book because it has a dog on the cover, or the word dog in the cover, or anything animal-related, so that's probably why I bought it to begin with. And I never realized how important mules were to World War II, so it was interesting to learn about that as well as to read this fascinating story. Okay. Okay, so that is The Midnight Cool. All right. Now, Jen, you said it was incredibly easy to choose a book that you, in your own words, hated. Tell me about it. So this is one of those books that I bought because it had these beautiful drawings of these dogs on the cover. And the book was called 15 Dogs by Andre Alexis. Right. That sounds perfect for you. Yes, but it went horribly wrong. This man is a sadist. <laughs> the book begins, oddly enough, with a conversation between the gods Apollo and Hermes, who are sitting in a bar in Toronto. They make a wager. Apollo says that any animal with human intelligence would be even more unhappy than humans. And Hermes says, well, let's give some intelligence to these animals. And if at the end of its life, even one of them is happy, then I win this bet. They just so happen to be near a veterinary hospital at the time. So they give the 15 dogs that are inside human intelligence while they also keep their memories. I was bawling by page seven and it only got worse from there. I mean, obviously, if one of these dogs dies happy at the beginning of the book, then it's over. So instead, it's just page after page of trauma and misery. And to be honest, whether the last dog dies happy is debatable, in my opinion. So it just seemed a pointless book to me. Just mean, mean, mean. No bad things happening to dogs, please. Well, no, that's not the case. Because if it's part of the story, okay, you know, in The Midnight Cool, there is definitely some animal cruelty happening in the early 1900s with these mules and other animals. But it is a part of the lives and the history and what was happening at the time. This just seems frivolous. There's no point to it. It's just how can we make these creatures as miserable as possible? It just didn't fit for me. You know, Marley and me. Great story. Happy, happy, happy. Spoiler, he dies at the end because he's old. Yeah, I'm sad because he died, but he was an old dog with a great life. That's fine. Just don't torment them and kill them for no good reason. Which is how I felt about 15 dogs. I mean, you got to know these things about your reading life. Yes. And now my boss is sometimes afraid. She'll be like, oh, I don't, I don't think you should read this. I think there's something that happens to the mouse or something. <laughs> she gets worried for me. Jen, what have you been reading lately? So the main one that we're super, I'm super excited about is Filthy Beasts, which is by Kirkland Hamill, who's actually mm -hmm. a Bermudian and he spent part of his youth here on the island. So this is a memoir that mostly focuses on his relationship with his alcoholic mother. So it's heartbreaking, but also very funny. And I think it made it onto the Indie Next list for July, which was super exciting for us. Highly recommend that memoir. Uh, I just finished the other night Golden Child by Claire Adam. And I'd heard quite a bit of buzz about that going into 2019, but then I didn't hear much about it after that. But it's a family story where they have to make a very 
traumatic choice mm-hmm. about their two twin boys. So that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Because I was really excited about that because that's from the same new imprint that published A Place for Us, which I adored. I, I set myself up to be disappointed. I was hoping for not more of the same, but I was hoping for that same kind of emotional resonance, like the specific mm-hmm. kind that I felt reading the book. I have not yet finished Golden Child. But what did you think? It's really hard. Not being a parent, I imagine it's probably harder for people who are. I can't even imagine having to make this kind of choice in your life. I mean, I really, I liked, again, related to the island part of it. It takes place in Trinidad. So I enjoyed that side of it. But yeah, it's, it's, don't read this if you're having a bad day. It's a tough one. Duly noted. All right, Jen, what are you looking for in your reading life right now? Partly I need to get on with all these books that are on the shelves. So I really need to push towards that. Also, actually, not just because I would like to get through them. I feel like I need to catch up on some backlist stuff when it comes to helping readers find books in the store. You know, it's easy enough to point to the new and shiny books that everyone's already heard of and say, oh, yeah, this is great. Read this, read this. But it's fun to be able to delve into some of the older titles and introduce people, you know, to the backlist of an author they're enjoying now or a whole new author. Emily St. John Mandel, we have now got fully stocked in our store because thanks to you, I became obsessed with her. (laughs) You know, and most people had heard of Station Eleven, so it's been really fun introducing people to to her older books. And she, anyway, is amazing. Have you seen her Instagram account? Yes. Her bio on it, and I love this. This made me love her even more. Her bio just says, St. John's my middle name. The books go under M. (laughs) Which, as a bookstore person, I totally appreciate. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I feel like if I can catch up on some of these books on my shelves, I'll be a little more well-rounded when it comes to helping helping people find, you know, new things to read. Okay. And we're choosing from your list. Yes. All right. Here's what we're working with. The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. Um, the first time you're really excited about reading a book for school. The Sex Lives of Cannibals by J. Martin Truce. Funny and surprising. And The Midnight Cool by Lydia Peel. Not for you, 15 Dogs by Andre Alexis. And you're a mood reader. I'm looking at a list of some of the titles on your shelf, and it's clear that you read widely, which is great for me because I don't feel like there's a way to go wrong, but is bad for me because you got to decide somehow. Okay, listeners, to give the reader an idea of what we're looking at, I like that you broke it down into fiction and nonfiction, Jen, and these lists are about the same length. Yeah, I think there's 20 on each list, I think. Okay. And we've got everything like we're going back to um, Sebastian Fox, Arthur Haley. We're all over the place with this one. Oliver Sacks. <laughs> but then we also have um, some pretty new releases like from Alice McDermott, Eleanor Lippman, um, Chris Bajalian. I think I actually tried to keep it books that were at least 10 years old, I think, so I could really get my backlist. And then for nonfiction... Some old stuff, some new stuff. We've got a Barbara Kingsolver book I've never heard of, High Tide in Tucson. Yes, that was the first one I ever heard. And I know exactly where I found it. It was in New York at a Barnes & Noble up on 80-something Street. And I stumbled in there one day because it was hot outside. And I found this book and just sat down and started reading it. And then apparently you stopped. (laughs) Yes, I read the first (laughs) chapter, I believe, and bought it and brought it home and Mm -hmm. added it to my shelf. And there it has sat. 
And what I'm noticing about this list is there's a lot of popular history, like um, Band of Brothers, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Um, there's some Simon Winchester. And then there's a lot of memoir and autobiography. Yes, I do enjoy those. Now, tell me more about this. You use the word quirk, where if you pick up a book by an author and it's their 17th book. Wait, let's give a less extreme example. And it's their fourth book. So I have a thing about reading authors chronologically. A current example is I picked up Jet Setters by Amanda Airward. But then I realized that at home I had How to Be Lost, which is an earlier book of hers. So I can't read Jet Setters until I read How to Be Lost. And then that is probably why some things end up just sitting and never getting read because I can't read the new one till I read the old one and maybe I'm not in the mood for the old one. So they just sit. And then I get really upset if I start reading something and I don't realize it's a series. Thank you, Justin Cronin, The Passage. Because then I'm going to have to go start all over again when they're all out. Oh, yeah? That'll be the plan? Oh, yes. 100%. I mean, how do you feel about this practice? You make the rules. Does this make you happy? It stresses me out. Although I have to say, when I do it, I enjoy watching how the writer grows. Like, go back to Emily St. John Mandel. You know, her first book, Last Night in Montreal... Not my favorite of hers, but her voice, you can see very clearly her voice as a new writer. And then you just watch it grow with each book that comes after that, you know. I kind of enjoy that part of it, but in the short term, I guess it stresses me out because I'm not getting anything read. So you said, this is a bizarre habit that you need to break, but haven't quite gotten there yet. But do you? I mean, do you really feel like you need to break it? I think I do, because like I said, otherwise things just won't get read. Okay. Well, today is not the day for an intervention. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to be choosing with an eye towards authors who may be established, but we're not going to choose anybody's 37th book. That sounds good. But I found over the years that many readers are able to break habits that may, here, how do I want to put this? If you do decide, you know what, this is a habit I want to break. I think I've seen in other readers' reading lives and in my own reading life that by taking a practice to the extreme, it can be easier to let it go because it no longer makes sense. That might not make sense in the abstract. So concrete example, it's one I've talked about before, is I know that many people are absolutely committed to finishing a book that they have begun reading. And I used to mostly be one of those dedicated finishers. But I have so many books in my house now. I mean, you're, you work in a bookstore and you still have this practice, but I have so many books now that I read for, for different purposes, uh, because it's my job, that if I finish every book I start, I am never going to be able to quickly find the, not even quickly, in a lifetime, find the books I need for a specific purpose. Because by picking up a book, I've committed myself to finishing it before I move on. Mel Jewel Wan is a past podcast guest here. She said once to me, we were just talking privately. She said, you know, the reader in me really wanted to finish this book, but the business person in me, because now she has a podcast, Strong Sense of Place, needed to keep reading more books about Japan or Hungary or whatever she was working on at the time so that I could complete the task in front of me. So what I might do if I were you and I really did want to help myself get over this is deliberately find a book that you are really excited about reading, take advantage of one of those new releases in the bookstore, or one of those advanced review copies from an author who had a long, long backlist. Because if they've only written 
like one or two previous books, I can see how it'd be easy enough to go back and want to read those first and read them in order. If you're talking about someone who's written 47 mysteries or, you know, somebody like an Ann Tyler, maybe it might be easier because it seems less easy to go to your normal habit. Yeah, that does make sense. And I make intellectual sense and everything in you still might be going, no, 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 no. Well, sometimes we have to get outside our comfort zone, don't we? That's true. That's true. And you're, I imagine that you're comfortable going outside your comfort zone in many areas of your reading life. I guess so, in trying different genres and such. But I think perhaps it's time I just put on my big girl pants and get on with it. But I'm not going to be bossy about it today. <laughs> All right, let's see. Well, Jen, I live in a, not a landlocked state. We got a, we got a river a mile from here, but it's not the ocean, you know? So I do wonder if this is my landlocked brain wanting to recommend you island books because you're on an island. I really hope it's not because that feels like pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I felt very landlocked when I lived in Louisville. I did struggle with that. When there's not a coronavirus, I drive down River Road like almost every day. And I really like being by the water. And even if it is filthy, like you can't necessarily tell that when you're like <laughs> not in it, which is a good thing. But then I moved to Chicago. I was in the suburb. There was a Joe's Crab Shack on like a divided highway. I don't like that restaurant. I've only been there once. But I was just like, this is wrong. Where is the water? And so I can only <laughs> yes. imagine what that would have. If I missed the Ohio River, I mean, come on. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah, it's oh. very weird. All right. Well, there is a book I was thinking of because I was trying to think about how you like these dystopian novels and gutsy kids. And I don't have a story about gutsy kids and it's not entirely dystopian, but there was still this novel that's coming to mind. And I have to confess, I wonder if part of it is these people ended up on an island and you're on your rock and there is a similarity there. And I'd like to think <laughs> my brain is a little more subtle than that, but I don't, I'm not making any promises. So if this sounds awful to you, just let me know. But the book I'm wondering about is Castle of Water by Dane Hucklebridge. If it was on your shelves, that would be amazing. Nope. Haven't heard of it, but I'm curious now. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's see if it sounds like you're curious for the, the right reasons. So we talked about a cozy catastrophe. This is not a cozy catastrophe because it's not the end of the world, but it's, it's the end of these people's worlds. So what happens in this book is there are two people on the same airplane that goes down as I recall, they are the sole survivors of this plane crash that happens on a very small island in the South Pacific. One of these people is a young woman who was on her way to her honeymoon in French Polynesia. The other is a young man who was leaving his job in the world of Manhattan money, going to the other side of the world to pursue his art. And yet their plane goes down in the South Pacific. Oh, and for whatever reason, they hate each other's guts. They end up on this island by themselves, the sole survivors of this wreck, and they have to make a new life for themselves. It's not an end of the world story, but you can see how with this setup, life as they knew it ended and they have to start over with what they have, which is almost nothing. And I wonder if this could be a way of reading something that has elements that you know you enjoy, but also a very different story from ones you picked up before. How might that sound to you? That sounds good. I do like a good survival story. And for some reason, I read a lot of plane crash books, which doesn't bother me. So I'm down for that as well. I don't mind reading them as long as I'm not on the plane. Yes, that's a bad time. So I'm perusing your list of books here, Jen. There was a title that jumped out at me, 
by Carson McCullers. It's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And the reason this jumped out at me is because she wrote this at the just unbelievable age of 23 years old. And one of the reasons that this book was so astounding is because it was written by a 23-year-old. It made her career. She went on to write half a dozen more plus stories and plays. But this is her debut, which means she has a nice long catalog that you don't have to touch before you read this book. And that's one of the reasons I like it. This is a sad book, though. Are you okay with that? I'm fine with that. Okay. I wouldn't prescribe you a steady diet. (laughs) So this is a story set in a Southern mill town. And McCullers herself was also from a Southern mill town. And actually there's a character in this book. Her name is Mick. She's a teenage girl. She dreams of like leaving town and making it big. She's generally believed to be the most autobiographical character that McCullers ever wrote. So that may be a little fun to pay attention to as you read. This is a story of a cluster of people in the southern town. And the story opens with this scene, two friends side by side. Um, I'm picturing them in this town square, but my imagination might actually be embellishing here. Early in the story, one of these two friends who are so important to each other gets sent to the asylum. And that's important to know. But there's this cluster of people in the town and McCullers looks at them. It's like in the close third person. So you get inside people's heads. It's not written from their point of view. You see how all these individual characters, all dealing with their own stuff, these small town residents, confide in this deaf man whose friend has been forced from him. I love a review. I think it was in The Guardian that said, this is a mad mix of characters and viewpoint, but also an ingenious one. And there are critics who called it a political parable as well. What she's doing is showing this sad group of characters, um, each really highlighting that unsolvable problem from the time that's definitely going to ring as true right now too. all turning to this man for solace, like confiding their problems in him, not realizing that he's suffering a loss of his own. So some people read this and they're like, oh, despair and desolation. No, thank you. Some people read this and it really strikes a chord and touches them. Regardless, McCullers' prose is beautiful. This is one of those books that many people think like, oh, I've been meaning to read that forever. It's here on your shelf. I think that might be you. It's a book that uh, probably, unfortunately, is still timeless because of the issues that she's addressing here. But it's also a really stirring, if sad, story. How does that sound to you? That sounds good. I like the ingenious mix of characters quote. I think that's, <laughs> that's, that has intrigued me. A mad mix. Okay, that is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. And Jen, for your third book, I'm going to fudge this a little, okay? Okay. You have such a great collection of autobiography and memoir, and I just like to pluck a couple from this Make sure you see a pattern that's very clear in your shortlist. Now, I'm looking at a curated shortlist. What I see is a lot of gorillas. You've got Diane Fossey. You've got Temple Grandin, a Jane Goodall biography by Dale Peterson. We know that you love dogs. I'm assuming that your love for the natural world and for animals doesn't stop there. For me, animals are solace. You know, my dogs have gotten me through some really rough times in my life, and I feel like we have to take care of them and all the animals in our world a little bit better than we do. I think we take them all very much for granted. I like reading about these people who don't, people who understand their importance. Farley Mowat is another one who I love. Okay. I love that. And I love that that's reflected here. 
I would urge you to take a look at those books that focus on that aspect of your life that you love. Mm -hmm. Gorillas in the Mist by Diane Fossey. That is the only book she wrote. You have the Jane Goodall book by Dale Peterson. Animals in Translation by Temple Grandin also clusters so nicely with those. Temple Grandin has written a lot of books. Not a book a year for 30 years, but a lot of books. And she gets inside the minds of the animals themselves in a really interesting way that I think could be fascinating. And also, I want to highlight a book that I guess I don't want to be mean, but rather deliberately breaks everything we've been talking about today about a short backlist. I noticed that you had A Girl from Yamhill by Beverly Cleary on your list. Yes, I loved her when I was growing up. Ramona was my girl. That is a lot of fun to hear. And I thought that was possible that you did love her growing up. I imagine that you have read the majority of her catalog. Yeah, they're all the Ramona books and uh, Henry and Ribsy and Mouse and the Motorcycle. I was going to say, she she writes a great dog. She really does. <laughs> yeah. Now, this book came out in 1989, and it was among the last books she wrote. And this is her memoir. It's her story of growing up in Portland. It's so interesting to read because it's written in the voice you know, but the story is completely different. And she talks about her child, childhood and growing up. You know, she was a li- librarian before she started writing children's books. Something that's also interesting about this right now is she's writing about growing up in Portland. And we had a podcast guest on, oh, I think the first year of the show, Danielle Mayfield, who lives in Portland, has a daughter named Ramona. And she's written eloquently about raising a Ramona in a very different Portland. So I think that cultural element is also interesting. But Beverly Cleary... I mean, she grew up during the Depression and with the hardships that you might not have imagined reading her generally like cheerful and upbeat stories. Mm-hmm. If Ramon is your girl, I think this might be your book. How does that sound? Okay, that sounds good. I think I need to check that out. Jen, we've talked about all the books. I mean, not all the books, but plenty of books. <laughs> yes. We talked about Castle of Water by Dane Hucklebridge, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. We talked about several autobiographies and memoirs, but especially A Girl from Yamhill by Beverly Cleary. Now, of those books, which are all in your home right now, <laughs> what do you think you'll read next? I think initially I was leaning towards Heart as a Lonely Hunter, but given that I just finished Golden Child, I think I might need to go a little lighter. So I'm going to go with A Girl from Yamhill. Oh, I love the sound of that. I'd love to hear what you think. Jen, thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you. It's been wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Jen, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 248, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. Readers, if you love to read, check out my book about the reading life. That's I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life. My newest book, Don't Overthink It, is perfect reading for the pandemic era. Both books are available wherever new books are sold. If you are on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. Find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. Sign up for our free weekly delivery at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast and want to give it your support, 
become a member of our Patreon community. Go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash what should I read next today to get started. So you can join us for our upcoming fall book preview and start getting our other bookish bonuses right away. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekachuk. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!